My name is Tanya Busby. My name is Terry Voigt. My name is Tim Shivers. I'm a high school student. I am a retired grandma. I am a merchandise planning manager for Victoria's Secret. I gave my life to Christ when I was about six years old. Since 1981. Back in 1976. I've been attending New Life since June of 2006. For eight years. My whole life. I grew up as a Roman Catholic. I grew up attending church. The biggest challenge with my walk with Christ was learning to trust God. My biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is patience. I am everybody. I am everybody. I am everybody. That's the name of our uh, new series that we're beginning today. And each week you'll be introduced to some of the everybodies who are part of our, our new life body here. So you can be looking forward to that. And if you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. That's where we'll, we will be today. And uh, I've wanted to do a series on 1 Corinthians for years. Um, problem is it has 16 chapters and each of those chapters is chock full of, of just wonderful content. And so that's always been seen as a barrier since it would likely take more than 30 messages to do it justice. Some hardcore Bible teachers have taken years to teach through 1 Corinthians. But um, I felt prompted recently to just start in on it and uh, trust the Holy Spirit to lead us forward, Okay. So we have a plan, and it takes us up until Easter, and then we'll just see after that where, where the Lord would want us to go. Well, we absolutely love God's Word around here. Amen? We love the Bible. We love the Word of God. We believe in it. We believe it holds authority over us. We believe it's God's holy Word. We believe it's alive and powerful, and like the Bible says, sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it pierces deep into our hearts and souls and exposes that which needs to be exposed. In our church, we challenge each other to have a daily quiet time with God, part of which is to take the Bible and open it up and read it or listen to it. And we trust God's Spirit to use the Word of God in our lives to transform us into the likeness of Jesus for the glory of God. So we love the Bible. Over the past year or so, I've become a fan of a fairly recent translation of the Bible. It's called the ESV, and uh, I got one for each of my younger sons for Christmas this year. We love the, the uh, ESV, and one of the things I wanted to do as we start in this series, because it's a verse-by-verse study, is to use the text from the ESV each weekend as we study 1 Corinthians. Now, I know the whole matter of versions and translations can be kind of confusing, to you, especially if you didn't grow up in church and you hear or read, you know, all these acronyms, the KJV and the NIV and the NLT, and then now I'm talking about the ESV, and it can just feel like it's just alphabet soup, you know, what, what's with all of these versions and translations? So I wanted to start things out today with a little sidebar and try to explain how we got our Bible and the place of translations and versions. So there's a little what would you call it, goldenrod sheet in your uh, worship folder. If you pull that out, I'm just going to take a few moments here and talk about our Bible, God's Word, and how we got our Bible. 
If you grew up in church, you know this, but we have a lot of folks at New Life who did not grow up, grow up in church. So let me just ask the question, what is the Bible? And the, we know the Bible is a library. It's a collection of 66 books all compiled into one book. They were written by 40 different authors over the period of 1,500 years, and yet they are amazingly consistent. That's because the Bible, while having many different human authors, actually behind all that just has one author, the Holy Spirit. And so whether he was talking to Moses way back in the day, or Isaiah, or Daniel, or John, or Peter, or Paul, he's very consistent because the Bible has one author, God. Well, you wonder, how did we get our Bible? And it's, it's an amazing five-step process going from the truth being in the mind of God to you holding a copy of his word in your hands today. And you can read through that, but there's, there's basically five steps in the process. Revelation, inspiration, transmission, and that's not like five-speed transmission in your car. Okay, that's the transmission of the text down through the, through the centuries. And canonicity. And then translation, which is what we hold in our hands today, a a copy of the scriptures in our language. And so evangelical scholars believe that God superintended that whole process and each part of the process so that we can trust that we have God's word today. And I stand with those folks who believe that. Well, why are there so many different versions down at the bottom there? And I, I just need to say this. Our language keeps changing, the English language. Have you ever seen a copy of the Declaration of Independence from 250 years ago? you ever tried to read it? Our English language has changed. And words that used to mean one thing now mean another thing, like the word gay, for example, used to mean happy. And we sing these Christmas songs that have that word in it, and I always chuckle a little bit. That, the meaning of that word has changed in our culture. And so our language is changing. The eternal word of God does not change, but English is changing. So there's always going to be the need for new, fresh translations of God's word from the original language into our current vernacular so that we can understand the word of God. Does that make sense? Now, why are there so many different kinds of translations? And there are different kinds. Here are four kinds of translations, word for word. Some translations of the Bible, some versions were translated word for word from the original language that the Bible was written in. Now, you know the Bible was not written in English, right? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament, Greek, and some Aramaic. And so if we're going to understand God's word, we need it in our language. And so word for word translations carefully interpret each word from the original language and translate it into English Striving for precision. The goal is accuracy. And so the King James Version and the New King James and the NASB and the RSV and now the ESV are word-for-word translations of the Bible. Then there are phrase-for-phrase translations or thought-for-thought translations. If you have a copy of the New International Version, which I do and have used for many, many years, it's, it's by far the most popular version of the Bible in the whole world. That's a phrase-by-phrase or thought-by-thought translation of the Scriptures. And these kinds of translations attempt to convey the full nuances of each passage by interpreting the Scriptures' entire meaning and not just the words. And sometimes these translations will include a few words here and there, not in the original text, 
in an effort to give the same meaning that the original readers would have had. So the NIV and the TNIV, the NLT, the CEV, the Good News Bible, all of those are thought-for-thought translations, not word-for-word. And so the goal of those translation teams was readability. They wanted to create a copy of the Scriptures that was easily readable, that read like a narrative. Then there are paraphrases. How many of you are familiar with the Living Bible? came out back in the 70s and very popular. More recently, the Message, a very popular paraphrase. Now, these are paraphrases, very loose translations, okay, that pay even less attention to the specific word meanings than the other, the other translations. And the thing about paraphrases is they often include some commentary from the paraphrasers, okay? They often include some thoughts that come from the minds of those who are paraphrasing. And you need to understand that. I use paraphrases in my study of the Bible, and I I recommend them. But just know that you should not rely on a paraphrase and not view it as an accurate translation of the Bible. Because it's got some thoughts and concepts inserted by the person who paraphrased it. Whether that's the Phillips translation or the Living Bible, Amplified Bible, those are paraphrases. And then there are corruptions. (laughs) These are translations, I use that term very loosely, that clearly seek to undermine the very teachings of Scripture due to a bias of some sort, a theological bias. And there are some versions out there that were translated by scholars who had a bias. They wanted to insert their belief into the Scripture rather than just translate it for what it is. The classic example of this is the... um, the New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, which systematically extracts the deity of Jesus Christ from the text. And I've stood at my doorstep and talked to these people. It's like, you can't do that. (laughs) You can't just make words mean what you want them to mean. You can't just eliminate parts of the Greek text. I took four years of Greek. That's not what John 1.1 says, okay? And so anyway... The goal, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek of those translators, is perversion. They want to pervert the Word of God, and we should recognize that. Well, over the years here at New Life, we have recommended translations that we've used to teach from, whether it's children or students or adults. Uh, The NIV has been our standard for many years, the NASB, the New King James Version, the King James, and then most recently, our elders recently approved the ESV. Uh, which is just a nine-year-old translation with extremely high marks, recommended and endorsed by all the evangelical scholars that you would want endorsing a copy of the Scriptures. And so that has been added to the list of acceptable translations to use in teaching around here. So I'm thrilled about that. There's some uh, suggestions there for further reading, if this kind of thing intrigues you, how God's Word got to us. It goes, these books go into more depth in terms of how we got the Bible. Okay, so I hope that made some sense and shed some light on the whole notion of versions and translations for you. But we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians now and use the text of the ESV, as I mentioned. Let me give you some background to 1 Corinthians, uh, first of all, if I may. The city of Corinth. This was written to a church in the city of Corinth. That was a city in Greece. Not much left of it today, but it was a happening place several thousand years ago. It was about 45 miles from Athens. 
and it was strategically located on a narrow strip of land four miles wide. We'd call it an isthmus. And uh, there it is right there. And it kind of connected the upper regions of Greece with the lower regions. And as a result, all traffic and trade flowing north to south and south to, to north went through Corinth. Also, traffic from east to west did. This is very intriguing to me. There's a seaport on each side of that isthmus. And a lot of times, ship captains, rather than making the journey all the way down and around the bottom of Greece, if they were coming down along here, instead of going all the way down and around, they would come into that port of Corinth there. If, if the ship was small enough, they'd carry it up and put it on rollers and carry it across the four miles of the isthmus to get to the other side. <laughs> so you had traffic going north and south and east, east and west. And so all kinds of people lived in Corinth. Population numbered about 650,000. So what, about half the size of, of Columbus maybe? And the culture there was really bending towards the vile and towards the wicked. In fact, a new word was coined in Greek, and we would translate it to Corinthianize. <laughs> and to Corinthianize someone was to corrupt them. So the city became synonymous with evil and corruption, particularly immorality. There were at least 12 temples in Corinth, including one to the goddess of love, Aphrodite. Now, do you know what worship of Aphrodite entailed? Sex with prostitutes. A thousand priestesses served in that temple. And every night, they would make their way down into the city and ply their trade. And so, wickedness and evil pervaded in the culture of this city. That's the city that this church was started in. Now, you can read about how the church got started if you read Acts chapter 18. Paul, the apostle, had come from Athens to Corinth. And uh, as usual, as was his custom, he started attending the Jewish synagogue there. And he started preaching about Messiah, Jesus, the Savior. And as he did, some people believed the gospel and embraced it and became believers and followers of Christ. And, of course, others resisted it and rejected it and got mad and upset and started to stir up things. That happened almost everywhere Paul went. But instead of taking off and heading on to the next city, he received a vision from God, and God basically said to him, Paul, I have many people in this city that I'm calling to my son, so stay, keep evangelizing, keep preaching the gospel. And he did. He stayed for 18 months, year and a half, and evangelized and discipled and gathered all the believers into an ecclesia, into a church, an assembly there, and that was the church of Corinth that now, years later, he's writing to. Well, the purpose of the letter is to address various situations in the church that he'd heard about. He'd been receiving reports now for a couple years as far as how the church is doing and what's going on there. And uh, there were all kinds of things going on. You will not get bored as we go through 1 Corinthians. All kinds of things were happening. There was division caused by celebrity pastor worship. <laughs> it's a good thing that was only going on back then, huh? Not in our culture. Immorality in the church. Lawsuits among believers. Christians were suing each other, taking each other to court. There was a misunderstanding of God's instructions regarding sex and marriage and singleness. 
All kinds of stuff. I won't go through the rest of that table, but chapter after chapter after chapter, Paul is dealing with these situations, and basically he's applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to church life. And that's really the overarching theme of the book. How, does, how should the gospel be fleshed out in a community of believers who are coming together, doing life together in a church? And so here's how he starts the letter. Here's how he sets it up. 1 Corinthians 1.1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. There's a name for you, for your next child that you bring into the world. Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. That's an important phrase. We're going to come back to that together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, here's the greeting, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of times when you're reading through one of Paul's letters, it's easy to just kind of skip over the first few verses because you're in a hurry to get to the really good stuff. But here in this letter, there's some really good stuff right here in this opening greeting. Paul uses the standard Greek format for letter writing. He starts with, who wrote the letter? Paul, right at the very beginning. Don't you wish that in our culture, letters started with, who's writing? So you don't have to flip back four pages and find out who's writing and then decide if you're going to believe everything they wrote because now you know who it is. So he starts out and says, this is Paul and our brother Sosthenes is with me here. Now we know who Paul is, but who the heck is Sosthenes? Well, there's a great story here. The Corinthians would have known who this man Sosthenes was. He was known to them. He was part, in fact, he was one of the leaders of the anti-Paul movement in Corinth when Paul was there. But interestingly, now Paul calls him a what? A brother. So somewhere along the line, Sosthenes heard the gospel, embraced it, and got saved. So there's a cool transformation story here. We don't know how it happened and the details of it, but Paul's saying, Sosthenes, you guys know him, he's here with me. And it's likely that, that Sosthenes was the one writing down the letter as Paul dictated it to him. Maybe you can imagine Paul pacing back and forth in his room. He's you know, speaking what he wants to say, and Sosthenes is there writing it down. Who are the recipients? To the church of God that is in Corinth, that's the one that Paul founded and really pastored for the first 18 months of his, its existence. And then the greeting, grace and peace, that was the standard common Christian greeting of the day. And both of those come from Jesus, right? Grace and peace. Paul's writing in about 55 AD. And the church is really still a baby church, maybe just a few years old. And there's some key words in this opening greeting that I want you to take note of. You see the same word appearing three times? You see the word called, called, and then all those who call upon the name of the Lord. Would you circle those three words? The calling of God is the subject of chapter one, and it's what we're going to hone in on, the how and why and for what purpose God calls people. And where it shows up first is when Paul says, I have been called by the will of God to be what? An apostle. 
Called to be an apostle. That was Paul's calling. Now, do you know what an apostle is? An apostle was not the husband of an epistle, okay? Two totally different concepts. The word apostle means a sent one. An apostle is someone who had been sent on a mission. You might think of an ambassador or an envoy or an agent or a representative sent on a mission with full authority from the one who commissioned him. So Paul starts the letter by basically reminding the Corinthians, hey guys, I've been called by God to be his ambassador. I speak for God. I spoke for God while I was with you, planting that church, and I speak for God now as I'm going to be talking to you about some important things. I'm speaking on God's behalf. I'm backed by his full authority. That's what he's saying. Now, the first century apostles were a very select group of men personally chosen by Jesus. They carried a lot of weight with those first century churches. Basically, when apostles spoke, you listened. They spoke for God. In fact, all the New Testament was either written or authorized by an apostle. There's some debate as to exactly how many apostles there were, but we can confidently identify 13 men recognized in the New Testament as apostles. Eleven disciples, I say eleven because Judas forfeited his role and he went to the place where he needed to go. He was replaced by a guy named, you know, Matthias. So eleven plus one, and then Paul, who came a little later. He was kind of a Johnny-come-lately apostle, and he actually refers to himself that way. When was he called? When did Paul receive this calling from God to be one of his apostles. Do you know? It was on the road to Damascus that day, on his way to persecute Christians, when Jesus showed up and rocked his world, knocked him off his horse. And uh, that in that moment, Paul saw Jesus for who he really was. He was saved at that moment. He was also commissioned by God to be an apostle. You can read about it in Acts 26, when he recounts that event to Herod Agrippa later on in his life. Now, why did Paul start out this way by kind of pulling rank? You know, hey, I'm an apostle. Was he bragging? Was he saying, hey, look at me, clap for me. I'm one of the elite. I'm one of the, you know, Delta Force guys in the church. You think Paul was proud? I don't think so. Later on in the same letter, he says, you know what? I'm really the least of all the apostles. Paul was not a proud guy. So why did he mention this? I think he mentioned it right up front in order to establish, or in this case, reestablish his authority to speak on behalf of God. He kind of was flashing his badge, establishing his credentials. You see, what happened in the early church is that Paul would go to a city and he would preach the gospel and evangelize and gather the believers together into a church and get that church started. Then he'd move on. And what happened time after time is, is guys came in behind Paul to those churches and undermined his authority. And they said things like, well, you know, Paul, he's not really that impressive. You don't really have to do what he says. And besides that, he's not one of the original 12. So he's kind of at a lower level. And these guys would come in and seek to discredit and undermine Paul. And that was going on in this church. And I think Paul's starting out by just reminding them, hey, just know I am still an apostle. I am still a representative from God. 
And in these next 16 chapters, I'm going to say some hard things to you guys. And it's not, I'm not just giving my opinion, okay? I'm speaking for God. I'm an apostle. So he's not saying, hey, clap for me because I'm so great. He's saying, hey, listen to me because I'm speaking for God. That's how he begins his letter, by identifying himself and reminding them of his divine calling to be an apostle. Then he turns to their calling. He says, I'm called, but you're called also to the church of God in Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his saint. We're going to talk about that. Now, note, first of all, he says, whose church is it? The church of God. It's God's church. So is this one. This is not my church. It's not even your church. It's God's church. He owns it. He forms his churches. In fact, Jesus Christ is referred to in the Bible as the chief shepherd. You know how we would translate that? Senior pastor. You know who the senior pastor of this church is? It's Jesus Christ. We take our orders from him. We get our instructions from him. We get our directions from Jesus. It's his church. That church was God's church, Paul states. And then he says, you who are in that church have been called to be saints. Called to be saints. Now let's ask a few questions here. What does that mean? What exactly is a saint? I mean, maybe you hear that word and you think, football. It's the saints, the New Orleans saints. They're playing in the Super Bowl tonight, right? You're thinking, maybe Paul's given some prediction about the saints and how they're going to do. And Nope, sorry, football was not on his mind. Maybe if you were raised Catholic or have a Catholic background, you have this view of the saints as these super spiritual holy ones who've been canonized by the church, who ought to be honored, ought to be venerated. And when you approach an image of one of those saints, you bow down, you kiss the feet of those images, you burn candles and maybe even say prayers to them. But if that's your background, you need to know that when the the New Testament uses the word saint, it does not apply it to a select group of super spiritual holy people. It applies that term, listen, to everybody who has trusted in Jesus Christ to be their Savior and Lord. It's not reserved or restricted for some super spiritual guys or gals. Everybody who's a genuine, true follower of Jesus is depicted in the Scriptures as a saint. So you're a saint here today if you know Christ. You ought to sit up a little straighter in your... See, puff your chest out a little bit. Well, it's not something to be proud over because we didn't earn that rank or we didn't earn that identity, did we? It's a grace gift purchased for us by Jesus Christ on the cross, like every blessing that we have. So he's writing to the saints and the believers there in the church in Corinth. You need to keep that in mind because as we read through Corinthians, you're going to think, these guys weren't acting like saints. you got going to court with each other. There was immorality going on. And that just points us to a truth that we have been given an identity in Jesus Christ, a high position, but our lifestyle doesn't match up to it. Theirs didn't. Mine doesn't. Yours doesn't. There's a gap. 
There's a gap between who we are in Christ, this high and lofty position that Jesus has purchased for us and bestowed upon us, and the way we live our daily lives. There's always going to be a gap. That's why we need what Pastor Brian talked with us about several weeks ago, God's sanctifying grace, working in us through his spirit to chisel and shape and form and mold and morph us more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. But there is a gap. And someday, thank God, that gap is going to be closed and we're going to be like Jesus. And it's going to be all the work of of Jesus in our lives. When we see him, when we see him, we shall be like him, it says. So that's something to look forward to. I've had to say this at times to my kids. Our kids aren't in here, are they? Good. You're a Benninger. Act like it. That name means something, okay? In other words, there's a gap here between your name and your lifestyle. Close the gap. That's really what Paul's going to say throughout this letter to the Corinthians. Hey, you are saints, holy ones, chosen by God. Live like it. And it's interesting then that God doesn't call us to, to be something that we're not, but really to just to live up to who we really are. And that's liberating. Called to be saints. Well, how does this happen in someone's life? What happened in the past that makes a person a saint, a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, Paul tells us how it happened for the Corinthians. Three things. Two of them that God did and one of them that they did. You see it? To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three things. God sanctified us, God called us, and then we called upon him. First, he says, God sanctified us. That means to make holy. That word is related to the word saint. It means to make someone a saint. And usually when we hear the word sanctified, we think of that process that I just described, that lifelong progressive process of being made more and more into the image of Jesus. But here, he uses it in a different sense in the past tense, as if it already decisively happened. You've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. So he's using it in a little bit different sense than he uses it in other places in the New Testament. I believe this is something that God did when he chose people for himself back before the foundation of the earth, as we've talked about several times. He set them apart in eternity past. I want you and you, and you, and you're mine, and you're mine, and I'm placing you in Jesus, and I'm placing you in Jesus. I'm sanctifying you is what God was doing, setting people apart for his holy purposes for himself. So that's something God does apart from anything that we do. And then the second thing he says is that then God called us. Yes, he set us apart for himself in eternity past, but then during our life, sometime after we're born, he calls us. To himself. I believe he's talking about that special, effective, decisive call of God to his chosen people, calling them to Jesus at some point during their lifetime. And this is what we saw last weekend in that parable of the landowner. Remember that? Where the landowner went back into the marketplace. Well, he went there at six in the morning and then went back at nine and twelve and three and then at five. And that signifies that God calls people at different points in their lifetime. Some people he calls early on when they're elementary age. Others as teenagers. 
Some in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. And some he calls at the 11th hour. Like that thief on the cross. I'd like to make a motion that we start to use Paul's terminology whenever we testify of God's saving grace in our lives. That we use his terminology. That when we're being baptized, for example, or in small groups when we're giving our testimony, that that we say it like he said it. That we say, you know what? When I was 12 or when I was 14 or when I was 38, God called me through his gospel and I responded by calling upon the name of the Lord. God called me. He initiated it. I think that's put, that puts the emphasis where it belongs, on God. It's his deal. It's his work. And I don't think that we should think that people get saved on their own timetable, time like whenever they want. Like the guy who's a sophomore in college, and he's thinking, you know, I hear the gospel, I hear about Jesus, but i got two more years of partying to do. So I want to have my fun first, and then I'll get saved when I settle down a little bit. Or when I have kids, you know, then I'll take Jesus up on his offer. Or at this point in time, or when I retire, or... I don't think that's how it works. The gracious landowner went back at particular times and called people to himself on his timetable, didn't he? I think there's a time in a person's life where God is calling you. You've heard the gospel. His spirit is striving with your spirit. That's the moment to respond. That's your day of salvation. I think when we have a cavalier attitude about when we get saved, that that's offensive to God. It's his deal. Salvation is of God. So how does he do it? How does God call people to himself, to salvation through the the gospel. Well, several ways. He, he calls people by drawing them to Jesus, doesn't he? John 6, No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. I envision God putting his hooks in people and reeling them in to Jesus. He calls us by arranging the circumstances so that people can hear the message of the gospel from a roommate from a pastor, from a friend, from an aunt or an uncle. God arranges those circumstances so that someone hears the gospel. That's part of his call. And then he calls people by opening their eyes to the wonder and the supreme glory of Jesus and his cross so that they treasure it. He opens people's eyes when he calls them, and and it goes from whatever to whoa. (laughs) You did that for me? God calls people. God draws people. There's a guy in our church, and I've heard stories like this many times over the years, but Jim, way back in the day, was not a saved man, did not have much spiritual interest, but he had a wife who was a believer and two sons, and they were praying for him. And as Jim tells the story, there was one particular Sunday morning where he got up and he found himself getting ready to go to church. Now, he had no intention of going to church. That wasn't his plan the night before. Hey, I'm going to go to church tomorrow. That was not in his mind, but he woke up and he found himself going through the closet, rifling through clothes, looking for some clothes that would be appropriate to go to church, even though he had no intention of going to church. And then later he found himself in his car with his wife and boys driving to church. He tells this story. It's like, that wasn't the plan. (laughs) And he got to church, and on that day, as God had orchestrated it, 
the pastor was preaching on the gospel, shared the gospel message. God opened his heart. Jim responded by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved that day. And, and he tells the story, and it's obvious God drew him. And that's the same, I mean, not doesn't play out exactly the same, but that's the truth about how any and all of us come to Jesus. God draws us. This is a wonderful thing, that God would come after us and chase us down. You ever heard of the term, the hound of heaven? I, the hound of heaven chased me, was nipping at my heels until I surrendered to Jesus Christ. God pers- pursues us until he possesses us. That's the calling of God. That's just one more cause to give him much praise. Thank you, Jesus. But we have a part two, don't we? We have a part two. When God calls people like this, they respond to his call. And I love how Paul puts our part. He says, called to be saints. So God did that. Together with all those who in every place do what? call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's our part. God calls us, and we respond by calling on him. Isn't there a verse that says that? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so there's a point in time, maybe at age 7 or 12 or 25 or 48 or 70, and God calls a person and we respond and say, Jesus, the cross, for me, yes, yes. But it's interesting, the way he puts this indicates that this calling upon the name of the Lord isn't supposed to stop after that day. That we, as believers in Jesus, continue to call upon his name. It's present tense. We are calling on the name of Jesus Christ, not for salvation, but for strength and guidance and wisdom and power, and all those things that we're dependent on Jesus for to live up to our high and holy calling. So I call on the name of the Lord every day. Do you? I get up in the morning. I got up this morning. Jesus, I need you today. Fill my life. Fill me up. Take control of my mouth, my mind, my lips, my hands, my whole body. I'm yours. I need your wisdom. I need your strength. I need you to live your life through me today. Because I have not the strength in my own flesh to live the saint life that you've called me to. I love that. What do we call that? Prayer. That's why the Bible says pray without ceasing. As believers in Jesus, we remain dependent upon him constantly. So we call upon his name in prayer. Well, I want to finish today by helping you understand why this matters. Why all of this matters to you. Called to be saints. That sounds so lofty, so ethereal, like not affecting our daily lives. But you know what? It does. Here's why. You have a self-image, don't you? You have a view of yourself. That view has been shaped and molded and formed for years and years and years. It started out with your parents speaking into your life, whatever They said to you, however they related to you, however they treated you, that was huge in your early years of forming your view of yourself. And then it moved from your parents to your peers as you got into school. And then it became, what do my peers think about me? And 
that your peers would reflect something back to you, their, their response to you. You know, there was Susie in sixth grade and Kyle in eighth grade, and maybe Susie thought you were a jerk. Maybe she told you that. Maybe Kyle thought you were an idiot. Who knows? But from our peers, that self-image was continuing to be molded and shaped and formed as people reflected back to us what they thought of us. And then our culture, as we get into adulthood, our culture presses in on us, doesn't it? And our culture gives us a constant stream of messages and seeks to form our image of ourself, again, based on things like looks, based on your net worth, based on how you dress, where you live, based on your body shape, based on your weight, based on all kinds of different things. And so each of us carries around in our mind an image of who we are based on all this input we've gotten all these years. And I think the call of 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3, is to reject all that. To say, no, I'm not going to believe what Susie thought of me. I'm not going to believe what Kyle said to me. I may not even buy what my parents fed to me in my early years. I'm going to choose God's assessment of me as a saint. Does this make sense? Because Susie isn't the most important person in the universe. Sorry, spit on you there, brother. Nor was Kyle, nor are your parents or your peers or your coworkers. God's the most important person in the universe. And if he says you're a saint, you're a saint. That's your primary identity in Christ. And so I think we can be free agents when it comes to what the world thinks about us. Now, the people around us may buy into the world system and may, you know, reflect those same messages to us. But I think in our hearts and minds, we say, well, you may think that, but I know the truth about me. And the truth about me now as a redeemed person, is that I have been made a saint by God who's bestowed that identity upon me as an act of his grace. And I'm going to live and walk in that reality, not in your reality, not how you define me. And I think we can say, I reject the world's efforts to define me as a person. I'm going to accept the definition that my God has bestowed upon me. Does this make sense? This stuff matters. Called to be saints. I don't think that means we're supposed to be arrogant, you know, and look down on people and be condescending towards them. You know, I'm a saint. What are you? No. It's a grace gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But we, we don't have to walk around with our tail between our legs as if we're nobodies. We've talked a lot lately about seeing God through a new set of lenses, but we need to understand that that will lead us to see ourselves through a new set of lenses as well. Because we see ourselves in relation to God, and that's our primary identity, that I am cloaked and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a gift. So... I'd like you to repeat a few phrases after me that I've sketched out here to kind of embed this more deeply in our hearts today, okay? Here's how we'll finish up today. Repeat after me, if you would. I am chosen by God. I was called by Him. I believed the gospel. 
I called on his name. God has made me a saint. I'm a holy one. I will glorify Jesus. The cry of my heart, and it's the cry of many of our hearts, that we could glorify you with our lives. And Lord, as we walk through 1 Corinthians together these next few weeks and months, would you impress upon us more deeply your view of us? Lord, as we've tried to get a more accurate view of who you are, would you grace us by giving us a more accurate view of who we are? Lord, there are some people in this room right now who really just need to be freed up from a self-image that was molded and shaped from all the wrong messages and ideas. And so through your spirit and through your word, would you work to set them free from that, that they might be able to embrace their new identity as called ones, holy ones, saints, set apart and devoted to you. Lord, oh, how our lives would be different. Our day-to-day lives, not just our Sunday life, but our Monday through Saturday lives would be different if we lived and walked and worked and played and related out of that identity. May it be so, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.